You are listening to sermon audio from College Creek Church in Annapolis, Maryland. For more information on this local body of believers, visit us online at collegecreekchurch.org or in person every Sunday at 11 a.m. This last week, I had really the joy of sitting down with with a friend, uh, a sister in Christ, a fellow member here at College Creek Church and sharing with them, they asked, and so I shared with them the story of God's work in my life, what we might traditionally call my testimony. Right? As, and as we, as we talked together about what God had done in the, in the course of my life, I remembered all of these moments, right? Moments of, of sadness, moments of, of joy, right? moments of challenge, um, seasons of doubt, seasons of, of sin in my life, times when I was running from God and times when I was running to him. And in all of that, as I sort of stood back and looked at the, the whole of it, I was reminded again of just how good and gracious God is in, in the midst of all, of all of really the foolishness that I bring about in my own life and all of the all of the things done to me. And yet when you look at the scope of, of your life from the lens of God's work, you begin to see his good intentions in your life, even when our intentions and the intentions of other people are evil. And in, in my life and your life as well, God is working. And he's working out his good intentions in your life. So be encouraged that God is working. I remember um, one particular season in my life where I transitioned from teaching to full-time ministry. And when I made that transition, I was pretty sure that what that meant was that all of the work that I had done in the realm of education was no longer useful to me. Not that it had never been useful, but it wasn't useful anymore to the kingdom of God. It wasn't that it was never good, but it was time, you know, time to sort of take that season of my life and just set it on the shelf. That story is, is over. A good thing to remember, perhaps, but not useful any longer. But God has bigger plans. And, and it was actually within months of stepping out of teaching and into college ministry within months of that, that I was asked to lead a mission trip to a country where you're not allowed, Christians aren't allowed to openly evangelize. And while there were Christians in the country doing really incredible work, spreading the gospel in incredible ways, one of the places that they really couldn't infiltrate with the gospel was the colleges and the universities in that country. But they realized, you know what? Maybe, maybe if we had an American educator come over, uh, perhaps someone with, a, with an advanced degree in education, maybe if they could come over, they could lead some lectures or do some workshops in these colleges. And if they came over and did that, then perhaps we could have a program where we'd bring American college students over to meet college students in this country. And, and we could do this sort of cultural exchange program. And, and so this is what we did. God said that masters of education that you thought didn't mean anything anymore and those years of teaching that you thought didn't matter anymore, all of those things actually matter incredibly because they're the very thing that's gonna give you a doorway into the hearts of people who don't know Jesus. 
And so we went, I went as a guest lecturer in education somehow, and this group of students came along as for this cultural exchange program. We got to meet people who were far from Jesus, people who may never have heard of him or really considered him had we not been there. But friendships were built with, with these people who, who the Christians of that country could never reach on their own. And we were able to share the gospel with them, with this incredible news of Jesus. I thought there was no usefulness of my sort of pre-ministry life, but God intended it for good. But, but I told you a couple of weeks ago, if you remember what I said about my own story a couple of weeks ago, the whole reason I became a teacher in the first place was because of sin in my life. The whole reason that I became a teacher in the first place is because I was sinning and I didn't want to stop. And so I decided to abandon a call to full-time ministry and to go be a teacher. I became a teacher so I could keep on sinning. I intended it for evil, but God used it for good. And isn't that just true of all of our stories? Are there all sorts of evil intentions woven throughout our stories, our own evil intentions, the evil intentions of other people being put on us, even just the the realities, the consequences of living in a sinful and broken world. But as much as we can look at all of the evil that is woven throughout our stories, if we take a step back and really begin to look at the scope of what God is doing at the whole of it all, at least the whole that we can see Thus far, what we will begin to realize is that God's kind and providential hand is working good even out of evil. And that's really the heart of the scriptures, right? I mean, that's the gospel. That's the gospel right there. Right? What others intend, what, what we intend, what Satan intends for evil, God uses for good. That's the gospel. And there's no clearer way to see that than just to look at the cross of Jesus, just to look at the the murder of the Son of God, a plan that was hatched and carried out according to the sinful intentions of man, a plan that that came to mind and came to fruition through the evil scheming of Satan himself. But what they intended for evil, God used for good. Because in the death of Jesus comes the hope of salvation. We're getting ahead of ourselves. Hundreds of years before Jesus. Hundreds of years before the coming of Christ, God was already demonstrating that he was the sort of God who was not only walking with us through our seasons of suffering, but he actually would use that suffering for good. He not only holds evildoers to account, but he actually uses the outcomes of their evil intentions for good purposes. We see it really clearly in our passage this morning from the book of Genesis. We're at the very end of the book of Genesis. We're coming to the end of our series that we have been in for a while. This is our final look at the life of Joseph, the life of Joseph and his brothers from the very end of Genesis chapter 50. So let me just remind us before we look at that text, let me remind us a little bit of the context of what's happening here in Genesis 50, because it's kind of hard to see the good intentions of God unless we really better understand the good, the bad intentions, the evil intentions of his brothers. 
So starting in chapter 12 of Genesis, we begin to focus in on this one particular family, the the people of God. Originally, um, just really one guy and his wife, Abraham and Sarah. God made this covenant, this promise with Abraham um, that he would be um, God's people, that God would make him into a great people and give him a place to live. And in that place, God's presence would be with them. And then we see God's kind providence in the life of his family, reaffirming that promise through the generations to Isaac and then to Jacob. And then we see it today in the lives of Jacob's 12 sons at the end of Genesis. That's the focus we want to look at. But I want to remind you that this family, Jacob's family, Joseph's family, it's not a healthy family at all. There's all sorts of of fighting and bitterness and jealousy and favoritism at work. Perhaps you can relate. It's all there. Hopefully you can't relate to this part. Jacob, the, the father, had been tricked into taking two sisters as his wives, even though he really only loved one of them. And these two sister wives became jealous of each other, trying to win some sort of strange childbearing competition. And so they not only both had multiple children with Jacob, but they also convinced their husband to sleep with their servants so they could have even more kids. And this is why there are these 12 sons. And of course, this is not a recipe for a happy and healthy family. And if having a favorite wife isn't bad enough, Jacob also had a favorite son, a his son named Joseph. And you know, it's one thing to have a favorite child, but Jacob made it clear who his favorite was. And that's a far different thing. He showered him with with love and with gifts, which prompted this overwhelming jealousy among all of his brothers to the point that they wanted to kill him. But seeing no gain in that. They chose instead to sell him into slavery. That way they would get rid of their annoying favorite child of their father, but also get a little money along the way. And and all that was perhaps fine and well until their paths come to collide 20 years later in the heat of a famine. Joseph at this point has, has risen in in prominence in the land of Egypt and his brothers come to really grovel at his feet for grain. And and he allowed it to go on for some time, just sort of letting them do that until finally revealing himself as their long lost, their long hated brother. But instead of exacting revenge on them, like we might expect, he invited his whole family. He said, all of y'all come to Egypt. Come live with me in Egypt. I'll provide for you. I'll provide for your children. Come live in this place, which they did for many, many years. But as our passage today is gonna show us, here's what's just happened. Their father, Jacob, the one who Joseph loved has now died. And we find Joseph's brothers beginning to fear what their very powerful brother might do to them. Now that their father is gone, perhaps the only reason that he hasn't exacted revenge yet is because of Jacob. So what's gonna happen now? Well, into that context, we get Genesis chapter 20, verses 15 to 21. So if you have your Bibles with you, you can go ahead and open up to Genesis chapter 50. Um, I'll read this for us. If you picked up one of these Bibles on, on your way in this morning, you'll find it on page 48. Um, and, and listen, if you don't have a Bible of your own at home, please just take one of those as our gift to you. We'd love for you um, to have that. 
Genesis 50, uh, verses 15 to 21, it says this. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgressions of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. You see, Jacob has died and Joseph's brothers are terrified about what comes next. They've lived now for 17 years under the care and provision of Joseph, and yet the weight of their sin is still weighing on them. And they're, and they're afraid of what's going to happen. They're sure it's coming. Retribution is coming. So, so what do they do? Well, by, by all appearances, they just resort back to their old way of living. In, in an attempt to protect their own skin, they try to convince Joseph um, into forgiving them. They try to really try to deceive him into forgiving them. We don't, we don't know for sure, but all indications are that this word from Jacob is purely a fabrication. Now, for starters, if Jacob wanted to say that, he would have just said that before he died. He would have just told Joseph his intentions. But also notice how they send this word. They don't tell him this. It's, it's because they're afraid of him that they come up with this story and they send a messenger to go tell him this. This is not, doesn't, doesn't smack of truthfulness. This is deception once again. And then when Joseph receives it, we're told that he just wept. Why did he weep? He, well, he, he wept because he realized that his brothers were back to their old game. And he realized that his brothers still didn't trust him, still didn't know him, still didn't love him. I, I became fascinated with this idea this week because actually this is the only place in Genesis where it even kind of pretends like Jacob knew that they had sold him into slavery. Nowhere else does it say that anyone ever told Jacob about this scheme to sell Joseph into slavery. As far as Jacob knew, he just got picked up along the way somewhere. And, and I think it's fascinating. Everybody I read, I, I really tried to look into this because I was, I was super interested in this. And everywhere I looked, everyone seemed to agree this is an attempt at deception. The, the commentator, Derek Kidner, puts it this way. The manner of telling the story strongly suggest that the message in Jacob's name was fictitious. It was this, surely along with the arm's length approach, telling its own tale of fear and mistrust that moved Joseph to tears. You know, as kind of as an aside, but it seems important, isn't this the way we often approach God? He has forgiven us. More than that, he has made it clear 
that he has forgiven us. And yet we still don't trust that he will actually receive us and care for us and love us. And so we sort of tiptoe towards him. We make up some form of deception, some excuse why he ought to receive us. Meanwhile, he has already fully forgiven He already desires a closeness of relationship with us. And as we come to him with all of our deceitful reasons as to why he ought to accept us, Zephaniah 3 tells us that he quiets us with his love. We make up all sorts of excuses and he just says, shh, shh, shh. I love you already. I don't need to hear your reasons. I love you already. You don't have to trick God into it. And no doubt it is heartbreaking to him that we continue to condemn and also to excuse ourselves in the face of his forgiveness. And and to be clear, Joseph has made this forgiveness known to them previously. Also, he actually uses the exact same language all the way back in chapter 45, 17 years earlier. He says this when he makes himself known to them. Look at this in Genesis 45, verses four to seven. It says, so Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. It's been 17 years and they they still don't believe it. But you know, Joseph believed. Joseph believed that God was working, that God was working and moving and doing something wonderful, even in the midst of his suffering and his oppression and his persecution, right? You see that in chapter 45, verse five, he says, don't be distressed. Don't be angry because you sold me here. Why? How could he say that? Because he says, God sent me, right? He says, you sold me, but God sent me. Joseph believed that God was at work. He says the same thing in in chapter 50, right? Look at what he says in verse 20. As you meant evil against me, God meant it for good, right? To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. You meant evil, God meant good. God is at work even in the midst of evil intentions. And, And those two words, those two words, but God, but God, those are, those are perhaps the most powerful, the most important words that you will read in scripture. Every time you see those words, but God, know this, the entire situation is about to change. Right? The essence of the gospel is those two words, but God. Right? Just, just listen to these passages from the New Testament where we see that phrase. This is Acts 10, Acts 10, 39 to 40. 
It says, and we are witnesses to all that he, that is Jesus. We're witnesses to all that Jesus did, both in the country of the Jews and in, and in Jerusalem, right? We're, we're witnesses to his, his miracles and his healings and his teaching, all of the things that he did. We saw it all, but they put him to death by hanging him on the tree. But God raised him up on the third day and made him appear. And just a few chapters later, Acts 13, and though they found him, that's Jesus again, though they found Jesus, no, they found in him no guilt worthy of death, right? Because he's perfectly glorious and righteous. There's nothing deserving of death in him. Yet they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God, but God raised him from the dead. It changes everything. Romans 5, 7 to 8 tells us, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. That doesn't do much good for any of us because none of us are righteous. None of us are good. There's no hope for us, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Or, or consider Ephesians. Ephesians 2, 1 to 5 talks about our situation in this way. It says, and you were dead, dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in our passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That's our status. Dead and enslaved at the same time. No hope inside of ourselves at all. But God, but God being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. But God changes everything. And Joseph says, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. The evil may be working, but God is working harder. Oppression may be upon you, but God is your deliverer. Suffering may surround you, but God is your refuge. Right? You may have sins that you don't want to talk about, but here's the thing. God already knows them. He still loves you and he longs to forgive you. So you can try to hide, but God is coming after you with his grace, but God changes everything because it tells you that God is at work and no purpose of his will will be stopped. Joseph had come to believe that God was at work in the midst of his hardship and in his suffering, that something bigger and better and more glorious was happening, bigger and better and more glorious than they could even imagine. And because he believed that God was working, he was free to be used by God. Because he believed that God was working, he was free to be used by God. Joseph believed God was working and, and it, it freed him. Do you believe God is working? 
If you believe that God is working in your life, that frees you up from being consumed with yourself to be used by God. Let me just show you three things Joseph was able to do because God was working. Because God was working, Joseph became a conduit of salvation. He says in chapter 45 that he was used by God to preserve life. In chapter 50, it says many people were kept alive. He became a conduit of salvation, not just for his own family, but to the nation of Egypt as well and to the nations, the people all around. In like fashion, when God is working, we, he wants to use us. We then can be used as as a conduit of salvation. But our tendency, our tendency when things get hard is to isolate. Our tendency is to to self-preserve, to just hang on to what I have. Our tendency is self-preservation, but if God is working, then I am free to be used by him as a conduit of salvation. If God is working, I don't have to be all about me because he's got that handled. So then I can look around and care for others. I can give my life away to serve him and to serve others. I mean, isn't that the example of of the cross? Jesus becomes a conduit of salvation in the midst of his suffering because he knew that his father was working. Can't you see this, this conversation between us and Christ? We come then, just like Joseph, we come then groveling to him because we know that it's our sin that killed him. And his response is to say, well, you may have meant it for evil, but my father meant it for good to bring it about that many might be saved. He became a conduit of salvation, even to the ones who killed him. Or look at the example of of Paul. Paul tells us in, in 2 Corinthians chapter seven, he begins to lay out all of the suffering that he has gone through. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7, chapter 11, verse 24, he says this, five times I received the hand at the hands of the Jews to 40 lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at the sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my own people, dangers from the Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger in the sea, danger from false brothers in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night in hunger and thirst often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there's the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. He says, I've been suffering in all of these ways, but if God is working, then he can use me as a conduit of salvation. So what do we see Paul doing as he's shipwrecked? What do we see him doing when he gets stoned? What do we see him doing when he receives the lashes? He gets right back up and he says, God, use me again. And he goes out and he preaches the gospel. He becomes a conduit of salvation even in the midst of his suffering because God is working. And so there may be things in in your life that you can look back on and see the hand of God's salvation, but there are probably many other things that right now you're like, I am in the thick of it. 
So let me just tell you this. God is working. One day you'll see it. You see some stuff already. One day you'll see this. And so right now, he can use you in the midst of your suffering as a conduit of salvation for others. Because God was working, Joseph could forgive those who harmed him. That's the second thing he's able to do. If this was just a matter of Joseph versus his brothers, there would be no forgiveness, but God is at work. And so what does he say? He says, do not fear. Am I in the place of God? Joseph says, I just leave it all in the hands of God. It's the same thing that Jesus says, right? What does he say on the cross? He looks out and he says, Father, forgive them. You're working. God, you're working, so forgive. What is it that that the deacon Stephen says when he's being stoned for his faith in Acts 7, 60? we're, We're told that he cried out with a loud voice. He says, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And do you, do you know what happened after the death of Stephen? Revival broke out. Persecution broke out. And revival broke out. And Stephen was used by God as a a conduit of salvation, even in the midst of his brutal death, because he spoke forgiveness because he knew God's at work. And so I can forgive even those who come against me. I don't know what all the ins and outs of your story are and what your situation that you're in today is like. I don't know. I don't know it all. And some of you may, may be looking at your life, and you may be thinking, it feels an awful lot like Joseph's prison cell in Egypt. It feels an awful lot like I have been abandoned by everyone, forgotten by everyone, abused by everyone, and maybe you can name them. You can name the people that are responsible for the situation that you're in right now. You know that they did evil against you. You know that they intended evil against you, but hear this. God is working. And because of that, you can forgive. You can believe that God is working. That allows you then to forgive those who've hurt you, those who've forgotten you, those who've disowned you, those who falsely accused you, those who've sought to do all manner of evil against you. And so if you have that that person, those people that came to mind, listen, God is working, you can forgive. And that doesn't mean that they didn't hurt you. And it doesn't mean that the pain that they caused you doesn't matter. It simply means that God is bigger and he's doing something better. You know, for some of you, the person that you need to forgive is is yourself. Or you look at the situations of your life, you look at what you're in the middle of and all you can do is blame yourself. But even in that, God is working. And you don't have to live in condemnation any longer. Because God is working. Joseph became a conduit of salvation. He forgave those who harmed him and he could even bless those who hurt him. He tells him there in verse 21, he says, do not fear. Do not fear, I'll provide for you. Yes, you've hurt me, but I'll provide for you and for your little ones. Joseph blessed his brothers even after they hurt him. But you can only do that if you believe that God is working. 
Right, and amazingly, this isn't the only example of this in scripture. We see it all over the place. We're actually instructed to do this. In in Romans chapter 12, we're told to bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Right, it it goes on to say, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourself, but leave it to the wrath of God, right? God's working. Leave it to the wrath of God, for it's written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. And if he's thirsty, give him something to drink, for by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. How do you do that though? It begins, it starts with actually believing that God is actually working. Because if God is actually doing what he says he will do, then I've been set free to be used by him in radical ways that I don't even understand. It frees me to love my enemies because Christ has loved me. See, God is the one who works justice and that frees me to walk in forgiveness. God's the one who says he'll be with me through it all. And so that frees me to bless others even in the midst of it. And what happens as we begin to live lives of forgiveness and blessing towards those who have hurt us, then, then they see in us Christ. They see something, something strange in us, something beyond this world in us. They see a hope in us that they can't explain. And when they see that hope, they have to ask whether they ask you or they ask someone else, they have to ask, where does that hope come from? This is when we're able to do what scripture says, which is to give a defense of the hope that we have. To give a defense of the hope that we have. You know, you're never told to defend God. You're never told to defend the gospel. You're told to defend your hope. And you defend your hope with the gospel. So they look at you and they say, how do you live this way? Why are you forgiving? Why are you blessing? It's because I have a hope that is rooted deep in me that God is at work even in the midst of my hardest days. And because of that, I can forgive. And because of that, I can bless. And guess what happens? You become a conduit of salvation because when people see that hope living in you, you can say, listen, you can have it too. This hope is available for all who would repent and believe in Jesus. You become conduits of salvation. Let me tell you one other thing about about this passage, really about all of scripture. When we read scripture, we love to make ourselves the hero. We would like to see in the hero us. So let me just tell you, you're not Joseph in this story. That's not who you, we want to be. I know he's a great guy. We want to be, and it's right for us to strive to be. We're supposed to read in Joseph and be like, that's who I want to be. But you're not Joseph. Joseph is pointing to Jesus. And if we're, if we're anybody in this story, we're his brothers. 
We sold him, we killed him all for our own gain, only to be saved by him, forgiven by him, blessed by him. Right, that's the gospel. That anybody who would, who would come back, right? Repent and come back and trust in Jesus will be saved, forgiven, blessed by him. We were all his enemies, but God through Jesus has adopted us now as his children. And now, and now, and now as, his, as his children, as the children of God, we can be confident of this. He is always working. Even in your darkest hour, he has not abandoned you and he will work good even out of evil. And because God is working, you then have been set free to be used by him. Let's pray that he would use us this week. Let's pray. Father, we are we're overwhelmed by your kindness, your, your grace to us in Christ that we see pictured in the life of Joseph, but we see on full display in the life and death of Jesus. That he would lay down his life and look out from the cross at the very ones who killed him. Look out from the cross at us and say, Father, forgive them. And so Lord, we believe because of that, because of that grace, we believe that you then are at work in all things. You're at work in the midst of our darkest hour. As we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you are with us. And because of that, we can be used by you. And so Lord, we pray that you would use us. Lord, help us to be to be open to being used by you. Help us to not try to, to preserve ourselves because we remember that you hold us firm. Help us to be people who would forgive and bless and love and share the incredible news of Jesus with others. It's in his name we pray, amen.